We are going to start today's session with a conversation with Ben Narasin, founder and general partner of Tennessee Venture Capital. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's start by having you introduce yourself a little bit to our audience, both to your personal background as well as the genesis of Tenacity. I know you have a new fund that you want to introduce. Yeah, thank you. So I am, uh, my background is a mix of, I spent 25 years as an entrepreneur that culminated in starting one of the first e-commerce companies in 1993, uh, when people didn't really know what the web was, didn't even know what the internet was. And then in 99, I was able to take that company public, a company which I basically bootstrapped. So since I did not raise any venture capital and I bootstrapped it, I still had control of that business when the bubble burst and I was able to take it private, uh, which allowed all the shareholders to participate equally uh, and fairly in the you know, relatively significant amount of capital we'd accumulated at the time. Um, I, that was in New York City. I left there, moved west, ended up in California about 18 years ago uh, in Silicon Valley specifically and became very enamored of the entrepreneurial community here and became uh, a seed investor in 2007. I was recruited in to build and run the equity practice of a, a large venture debt shop. And in 2007, I believe there were three of us, uh, three different organizations. I think Josh Kaufman had started first round capital about a week before I came on the scene. And I think Jeff Clavier was active in the business. I think that was it. Those were the three institutional seed funds. Now, since then, seed has grown quite a bit. So I spent about eight years as a seed investor. And then I had uh, two $5 billion outcomes in a year. And a lot of my friends I'd gotten to know in venture started talking to me about crossing over to become a traditional VC. So I spent the last six years as a traditional VC, most recently uh, at NEA, New Enterprise Associates, one of the largest and oldest venture firms in the world, a really phenomenal group of people. Um, and I just recently, actually only about a month ago, spun out to raise a new freestanding seed fund called Tenacity Venture Capital. So now it's a blend of my 25 years as an entrepreneur and my 14 years as an investor. I'm now a entrepreneurial investor, a founding venture capitalist. So I'm out raising money just like all the entrepreneurs I've ever talked to. Uh, it's gone well. I'll tell you some of the specifics if you'd like about the fund. But while I was told it would take about a year, which was fully what I expected, I was able to raise the first half of the fund in 25 days. So I think having a 14 year track record with a lot of high performing funds uh, has made it a lot easier uh, versus just having a theory of things that I might want to invest in. And I'm all about, you know, the founder, the opportunity. I, I always say I need five things to make an investment. People, 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 a great idea and a huge market that works. I want to fund phenomenal founders who already have ideas I love and who have the opportunity to build truly unbounded and enormous upside businesses. So that's a, a capsule. So what, um, what uh, size fund are you uh, building with uh, Tenacity? Yeah, it'll be a 50 to $60 million fund. Because I'm a, I'm a sold GP, so in essence, you know, it'll be a one-man band. And I look at my history and I, you know, I look at about 1,400 to 2,000 pitches a year, but I only fund about seven to 10 when I'm doing seed. And since this fund will be leading and co-leading, I assume it'll be seven. So basically the way I figured out what size fund would be appropriate is I looked at my pace 
uh, which I don't want to change because I think when people try to change their pace, they lower their bar and that results in less compelling returns. So if I do seven deals a year, according to PitchBook, the average seed deal was $2.6 million in the first quarter of this year. So that's an overly simplistic rubric. I said seven times 2.6 times the three years it'll take to deploy. Gets me about 55 million, hence the 50 to 60 million range. Right now, if, if things continue at the pace they have, it looks like I'll have more capital available to me than I'm asking for. But it is important to me to maintain the rigor of keeping it in that size. Because as I mentioned, you know, I think that when people raise more money than they plan, it changes their behavior. And I, I don't think it changes it in a positive way. So I want to keep it tight. Yeah, well, I think uh, in the 90s, the venture funds that worked in the early stages used to be about 250, 300 million. And then they started changing size and, and started becoming billion to billion funds. And they lost the capacity to do earlier stage investments uh, in, in many ways. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In fact, this was part of the phenomenon I saw in 2007 was that there was this gap in the market because you had a variety of angel groups and angel investors, and they were very small checks and very slow processes. And then on the flip side, all these venture funds that used to be a few hundred million dollars had turned into multi-billion dollar funds. And so they had to write bigger and bigger checks because it's very hard to scale venture capital. Uh, it's, I'm not sure you even can. It's a, a people business. It's still a cottage industry. It, there's lots of reasons. I'm happy to talk about it if you'd like. But you know what happened was when you had the small and slow over here with the angels and you had the bigger checks in the, in the venture, in the middle was what is now called seed, but there was nobody doing it. And so that's why it seemed like such a great opportunity. You know, just creating a model where on the back of the fact that the web had empowered people to start businesses so quickly and so inexpensively, uh, they needed a source of capital that could match that relative ease and speed uh, compared to the prior era. And, uh, and that, you know, it's obviously been a successful category and grown quite a bit since, uh, since the three of us were out there. Yeah, in fact, today the industry is kind of fragmented or segmented, I would say, in the seed and the capital industry into pre-seed, seed, post-seed, pre-series A, post, you know, like early, early series A, like a small series A, and then yeah, traditional baby A's and go seeds. So, yeah, where, where are you positioning? What's your... Uh, yeah, you I'm, I'm happy with anything before the series A. Incubation, anything. formation, pre-seed, seed, second seed. Very pretty okay. rare on the second seed, to be honest. But, um, you know, it's just my focus has always been finding entrepreneurs that I believe to be venture scalable and helping them raise their first venture round. And I've had a very high conversion rate, so it appears that's worked. Um, I got to know over 327 VCs in my eight years as a seed investor. And in that eight year period, between 63 and 71% of the companies I seeded went on to raise follow on rounds typically Series A's from Tier 1 firms. And those rounds often came either from introductions I made or I was involved in, you know, the I funded 80 companies in eight years and I believe I was involved in every single Series A. Now that doesn't mean the entrepreneurs always took money from the people I introduced them to, but I always introduced them to, you know, one of the things about uh, the venture debt industry is they tend to be very well aligned with the top tier firms. And so, you know, my 327 person network was entirely derived from sort of the top 15 firms. So a lot of my work was figuring out who to take entrepreneurs to that would be right for their business and their personality. And so, you know, I like to get there early enough to be helpful, 
um, sometimes to be even a little bit formative to the business and the entrepreneur's development, and then to help them pick the right partner and to help them with that fundraise. So, you know, anything before the A is fine. I've even sometimes been brought in on the A. I had an entrepreneur, a uh, great founder out of LA, and, you know, I had seen her in a startup competition and we talked a lot, but there was a risk I couldn't get comfortable with, so I decided to wait. And she came back to me six months later for some advice and talked about how she was doing and she was doing exceptionally. And I was like, you know, I, I think I probably should have invested. Can I invest now? She said, well, it's too late, you know, six months later. Um, but if you can help me raise my Series A, then you could invest alongside. So I introduced her to uh, the fund that became her Series A investor and participated in the round. So, you know, a big part of my thesis and value add and the thing a lot of my entrepreneurs will say is that I can really help them get a successful Series A done. If they're like one of my little rules is I'll help you raise your series A if I think you're ready, not if you think you're ready, because it's one of those things a lot of people want to do, but it doesn't mean they're ready for it. And, you know, I'm very picky about who I introduce to who. And that's true for both. I want the entrepreneurs to know the right people. I want them to have the right possible board member. But I also want to make sure the VCs are seeing companies that are fundable uh, in making introductions to VCs over an eight year period. And there were hundreds. I think I had two people ever say no to an introduction. Um, interestingly, I think Mark Berry was one of them. I guess I didn't know him as well as I thought, but that was it. Two people said no to companies that got funded that they should have said yes to at least meeting. So, you know, it's a, it's been a good track record. I'm happy. And I think my entrepreneurs are very happy. I'm smiling because we do exactly the same thing is, is very often people come to 1 million by 1 million looking for investors. We don't operate as a fund, but we have a network of hundreds of investors who work with us and, and look at our deals. And, and we are very particular about making sure that they are fundable before sending them to VCs by yeah. our judgment, not by their judgment. And, uh, and it's exactly the same logic that you just laid out that we have in how we do the investor introduction. Yeah, it's very important because, you know, it takes a lot. I, I spent an inordinate amount of time and money over that eight year period getting to know these folks. I was very fortunate exactly. to have a platform that gave me pretty much unlimited time and money to do it. But, you know, those relationships are, you know, I think of myself almost as, this is not a perfect analogy, but over the last 18 months, we've been fostering puppies and we have fostered 64 puppies. You know, my attitude is my job is to give these puppies a safe, happy home. So when they go off into the world, they are good puppies to the families that are their forever home. And so when I think about my own interactions with my entrepreneurs, like I have a lot of adopted, let's call it children for lack of a better term, and I can't bend the discipline because if I do, then that really deserving, phenomenal, let's go with puppy, doesn't get the opportunity uh, if I, I sort of stretch a bit to get someone that's not ready to go out there to go out there. Yeah. And so, you know, you want to protect those relationships, those relationships. This is, this is a very, you know, life is long uh, normally. And you want to make sure that both sides, it's one of the peculiarities of the venture business, by the way. You know, I remember I was talking to a, a VC once we were on a board together or, or invested in the same company and they were raising a, like a series B or a series C. And I was making all the introductions and I said to the VC, like, why am I doing it? You know, I'm a, I'm a seed investor. You're their VC. Like, shouldn't you be making these connections? And they said, Ben, I don't usually make connections to my entrepreneurs. If I connect an entrepreneur to another VC, it makes them look weak. Now, I'm not going to say everybody feels that way, um, but I have found it's relatively it's common. It's a very odd logic. I don't agree with that at all. 
I think that a lot of VCs feel like if it's if it had to be introduced, it wasn't strong enough to get there on its own. But when you've got a seed investor, it's the opposite. You know, the seed investor is expected to make those introductions. And every venture firm, and I've worked in a couple, they always have a list of the seed investors that they want to stay on top of and that they respect. And so as long as that respect is maintained and that trust, you know, they're going to listen to what is said. So, you know, when I help entrepreneurs raise, the number one thing that will happen is, you know, I make an introduction, they go in to have a pitch. And if the VC likes it, I get a call and it's like, tell me about Bob, tell me about Jane. You know, they want to know what my year with that entrepreneur has taught me. And, you know, they all have basically when they say, tell me about Bob or tell me about Jane, what they're really asking is, is this, and sometimes they just ask it this way, is this the long-term CEO? Is this the entrepreneur that can take it all the way from the exciting growth they have today to a future public company? And, you know, and, and by the way, if they're not, is it going to be a problem? So, you know, by then I'll be able to say, I don't know if they can scale all the way to IPO, but I'm positively inclined to believe so, because usually those are the type of people I'm taking out. Um, and I think they're so dedicated to this business that if they were not the right person, they would probably see the logic of perhaps becoming the, you know, if they're highly technical, maybe they become the CTO and bring in a professional CEO or, or whatever it is. But, you know, it, it is interesting to me that when I was a VC, uh, all the people I know tend to call me when I introduce them to entrepreneurs, if they're interested. They're either asking about the entrepreneur or they're asking how to win in a highly competitive round because they want some back channel. They want to understand like what they need to do, what they need to offer to get this round to come together. But having been on the inside of multiple venture firms, it is very rare for VCs to reach out to the earlier investors, which I find confusing because as long as there's a trusted relationship, they're a great source of intel. I mean, what, what better way to know a little bit about an entrepreneur than to talk to the person that spent the last year with them and watched how they developed. So it's a funky world. It's a small world. It's, it's a very a, funky world. Yeah. It's a very funky world. I've been in, in Silicon Valley since 1996, actually. And uh, it has changed a lot. But, uh, but yes, it is a very funky world. So let me, let me ask you, one of the points that we stress in 1 million by 1 million is just like you're looking for product market fit, you also you also need to look for investor entrepreneur fit to make a deal happen. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what is your investment thesis? Um, people, 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 great market, all of that is kind of generic, but tell me a bit more about what you like to invest in, what kind of things, you know, what problems in the world that you have your eye on perhaps, and what segments yeah. do you particularly like? You know, we talked about you starting off as an e-commerce entrepreneur. Is e-commerce still an interest or is that a played out sector? For you, you know, it's funny. I was, uh, I remember once I met a, you know, I made a very proactive effort to meet every VC at the top 15 firms. I mean, I tried to cover 100% of them. And there was a, let's just say an investor had just joined one of the best firms in the world. And I took him out to lunch. And he told me a story of what he had done. He had basically created a, let's go with mobile advertising platform, which sold for, maybe a little shy of a billion dollars. And he still owned much, most of it. So he did exceptionally well. And I said, oh, that's great. I have two really great mobile ad companies you should meet. Um, and he was like, Ben, 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 you've got to have a lot of naivete to invest in mobile advertising. And I was like, oh, interesting, since you made you know half a billion dollars personally doing that. But the reality is, I would argue everybody that's ever done something 
thinks anybody else that does it must be naive because, and they are, because they know how hard it is, right? You have firsthand experience of how excruciatingly difficult it was to do that thing. So there's no illusions about it. Now, interestingly, of those two companies, one sold for about a billion dollars and I made 60 times my money. And I think the other one didn't work out. So, you know, it worked out for me on a blended basis. Um, the the reality is I've, I've looked at e-commerce. I just haven't found it. You know, I probably have a higher bar there because of my experience. Just like there's some other categories. You know, I am a generalist. Uh, I believe the best entrepreneurs are highly focused, but I believe the best investors are generalists. You know, think about it. Sequoia and Benchmark, which are the two best firms in the world, return-wise, are both generalists and every investor there is a generalist. Uh, Scott Sandell, who runs NEA, he's a generalist, one of the best investors in the world, certainly of our generation. The best investors are generalists. I am more focused Sam, on... I'll come back on that. Hang on one second. There's a company that I have great respect for that is Emergence Capital. That is not a general generalist firm at all. They started with the, in fact, I was, you know, I did their story just like you were talking about your starting tenacity. And at this point, it's a similar point. I had uh, uh, talked to Brian Jacobs and, uh, and he presented a thesis of investing in SaaS at a time when nobody was doing SaaS and they did phenomenally well with the whole SaaS yeah. trend. So oh, I'm not saying only generalists are great investors, but the very best investors are generalists. I think Ribbit is an exceptional firm and they do fintech. They're great fintech investors. I do a lot of fintech. But, you know, the way I think about it is I, I, I'm hyper focused on the entrepreneur. The firm is called Tenacity for a reason. You know, I think that brilliance is assumed or I wouldn't have funded you. A great idea is assumed or I wouldn't have funded you. And a huge opportunity is assumed or I wouldn't have funded you. The only secret to your entrepreneurial success is tenacity. I spent three years, funded 30 companies, and had zero fails. And this worried me a great deal because I thought I wasn't taking enough risk. Um, and so I loosened up. That was a mistake. I had my very first fail, and it was an entrepreneur who gave up. He gave up with money left. It's like uh, the horrible story I heard when I was young from my parents who were scuba divers of a man that was found dead in a cave doing a dive with a full tank of oxygen. You know. You don't, giving up is not an option. Like work-life balance, also not an option. Those are not things that work for people that want to be entrepreneurs. I mean, they can be entrepreneurs and just sort of uh, Again, I, dis I disagree with you. They don't work in venture entrepreneurship. Oh, there yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, in fairness, I, I'm only calibrating for that. Uh, I, I, look, I think that should be clear from the beginning. I'm focused on people that want to build future but, companies. But back is my audience is, is not just your, you know, if you if you say that you're not an entrepreneur, if you cannot have work-life balance, I have to push back on that because I have a very different segment as well that listen to these. Uh, yeah, you know, that's fair. But I'm, but we're talking about like what I solve for and what I look for, and I look for venture-scale entrepreneurs, and in yeah. that category. If you believe you can have work-life balance, I would like to meet. I would like to meet the examples of the people that do, because I never. No, have... actually, on the contrary, I think your venture-scale entrepreneurs very often end up with three divorces in their lives. So yes, you're absolutely right. Work-life yeah. balance is most likely not an option. Yeah, and it's it's not like I'm saying you need to ruin your life to be an entrepreneur. It's more that having lived through the realities. If you are going to pursue this type of entrepreneurship, you need to go in eyes wide open 
you know, like my grandfather was an entrepreneur his whole life and he had work-life balance. You know, he had uh, a solar business when uh, the laws were such that he could have solar. He had a chemicals business. He used to own laundry mats. You know, he had, he came home and he had his life and he, you know, he led a, but, and he did well, but there's a huge difference between being a sort of, for lack of a better term, day-to-day -day entrepreneur and, and being uh, a, a, a future public company CEO. Um, you know, a hot dog stand is an entrepreneurial endeavor. But when I was in college, I had a Dove Bar truck. So it's cool, an entrepreneurial uh, endeavor. It's a billion-dollar bootstrap venture. And, and if you ask that CEO, that's also a very different story. So the reason I'm pushing back on a lot of things that you're saying is that they're a bit insulting to another category of entrepreneurs whom we have made a very strong effort to nurture. And we continue to believe that you know, the venture way is not the only way. It is I your totally way. I totally agree with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I'd say the number one piece <laughs> Don't of advice. Don't have please. Yeah, no, I, the number one piece of advice I give entrepreneurs is usually, you know, avoid venture capital because there are a lot of businesses that can be really good, really healthy um, wealth creation businesses that should not have venture capital because it creates a disalignment. Like everything you're hearing from me is not what I believe every entrepreneur should do. It's just That's the right. type well, of entrepreneur. The most important thing is that big market opportunity. You know, hyper growth is not a natural state of business, a very rare state of business. So Absolutely. if every entrepreneur thinks that we have to achieve hyper growth, that is not viable. You know, most businesses I, don't have the characteristics of able to of being able to meet that hyper growth criteria. So absolutely agree. I mean, that's why I look at close to two thousand companies a year, and I only fund seven. It's not the one percent of entrepreneurs that makes sense for this. It's sort of ten basis points, and I think what yeah. sometimes there's a lot of uh, uh, unhappiness created or or just uh, wasted time when somebody that has a really good business. So venture wasn't built to fund really good businesses. It wasn't built to fund even, you know, great businesses. It was built to fund phenomenal outlier businesses. I think that's right, exactly. But I think the problem that has been created in the media is that, you know, the media has kind of positioned entrepreneurship equals venture capital. And that is what has created all this misconception yeah, yeah. and anxiety and yeah. rejection, constant rejections. I mean, if you get a lot of rejections, it's bound to discourage you, right? So if you're, you're, you're going out there too early, you're going out there without the right goods, and you're not a fundable entrepreneur, you go out there, get rejected, and get rejected, and get rejected, and you don't understand why you're getting rejected. That's really a recipe for disaster. Well, that's why I'm so, I don't know, for lack of a better term, transparent about this point, because I think it's a great disservice for an entrepreneur that should not raise venture capital to spend time trying to do so. It's a waste of their time. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with a business that doubles every year and that makes you a healthy living. Um, but, you know, like lions only eat meat. So don't try to feed a lion a salad or they'll eat you instead. So, you know, like using up your time to go out there and try to raise venture mm -hmm. capital when you've got a nice, like you said, hyper growth companies are rare, but that's sort yeah. of what venture seeks out. And, and finding that match is really important. I see a lot of people, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's the media as much as it's just that there's this, well, in Silicon Valley, it's almost like if anybody lives here, they assume their business should raise venture capital. And that's, you know, the not the case in the vast majority of instances. Um, and you just, you know, you need to, there's lots of different forms of capital. And I think it's very, it's, you know, it's a long-term marriage. You know, when you, 
when you go out to raise money, you need to be able to find the kind of capital that matches the realities you want to build. Because yeah. if you don't, you end up in a situation where you could be in a, you know, ultimately, if you were, let's pretend for a second that you had a business you wanted to build as a nice lifestyle business, and yet you managed to raise venture capital. Well, you know, you sign a one-way prenup and you don't get the right to exercise it. So it tends to go poorly. Um, I was, look, I never raised venture capital. I had a business that I guess, you know, it was hyper growth, but it wasn't at the level. Uh, even though I got that company public, it was not a venture fundable business. And had it been venture funded, I would not have survived. In fact, in fact your e-commerce category right now, I think is full of companies that are not necessarily venture fundable. They're niche e-commerce businesses. There's still lots of niche e-commerce businesses starting left, right, and center. Shopify is very easy to get a company started with. And then there are other kinds of financing available. You can, you know, get inventory financing. You can get on deck to Clear finance your uh, transactions. Exactly. There's Cabbage and on deck, all these fintech firms that will give you a little bit of money to keep, yep, yep. you know, moving forward. So, I mean, I actually, I was, I was curious to think, uh, to hear your analysis of e-commerce because e-commerce is starting to get to a point where, most of it is not really venture fundable at this point. Well, it's interesting. There's a, a within the category, there's some venture opportunities, certainly. As an example, today, 54% of all merchandise sold on Amazon is sold by marketplace sellers, not by Amazon. So, yeah. like, as an example, I, I wanted to understand that better. So, I, I have a little side business. It's not even really a side business. It's just a, I bought a pallet of Amazon returns and then relisted it on Amazon and on eBay to sort of see what that was like. Now, the reality is the most compelling marketplace sellers are selling their own unique product. But that business, those, those, that 54% of volume is made up of everybody from the, the sort of sole operator selling a single product to uh, multifaceted players. What has started to happen, though, is on top of that, now that people have figured that dynamic out, there have become a handful of venture-backed businesses which are buying those individual yeah. sellers and stitching yeah. them together in an effort to become the quote unquote Procter and Gamble of roll-up. Yeah. So they're doing Private. exactly they're doing a roll-up. They're buying companies that are call it you know maybe it's even as little as one to five million in revenue, but they're adding it all together to create a bigger quote unquote venture scale yeah. opportunity. So not yeah. only is there financing available for these smaller businesses through the, the People like, I believe it's ClearBank that will loan against your advertising. If you can show that by spending a dollar, you can make a dollar eighty, then they will fund that. And uh, I actually invested in Cabbage when it first started out. They would fund sellers on eBay against their selling history. Um, and now, so one, you have a source of capital, as you pointed out, but two, you have a source of liquidity as an exit. So you build your business up to a $5 million revenue business, which is a seems like a healthy lifestyle business to me. If you're making 40% gross margins, that means $2 million of that's flowing to you. And if you can keep your operational expenses low, that can be a really great living. Um, but then later, there are people that will buy you because they want to roll you up and they're paying nice multiples. It's very rare for businesses that small to be able to pay, be paid um, you know, revenue multiples, but it's happening. So there's a, there's a great opportunity for an entrepreneur, you know, with your million by million model to get to that first million in revenue as an Amazon seller. I maybe get it the next time, you know, spend another year or two to get to two or three or four or five. And by the way, there's not just one buyer, there's multiple buyers, which drives the price up. So a lot of opportunity, both for cash flow and for ultimate liquidity. And, you know, I learned this, the, you know, I didn't have a billion dollar outcome. 
Um, I was not an entrepreneur. I was the type of entrepreneur I would want to fund, but I, I didn't have the opportunity of the scale that I wanted to fund. And and I'm very happy. <laughs> you know, like, I, I, it's funny. We all have a quest to understand what life means to us. Uh, every once in a while, you know, I'm somewhat philosophical and I'll have my entrepreneurs tour in my house every once in a while. Like, if my attitude is, if you need me, I'm there for you. We just have to figure out how to make the time work. And I do want to respect the time with my family. And I've always kept the weekend sacred. That was sort of my golden rule. That was as close to work-life balance as I could get. My wife and I, when we were about to have our first child, we talked about it quite a bit because I was working on a company that would go public a couple years later. And, uh, you know, she said, look, if you can work all-nighters five days a week, just give us the weekends. And I thought, yeah, let's do that. And now I carved out, you know, a couple of weekends for our trade shows. And during our IPO period, I worked every single day except one Sunday. But that was always my model. So now with my kids a little older, I say, I'm, I'm happy to be available to you. But if it needs to be right away and it's Friday, I need you to come to me. You know, so they'll come to the house in the evening or they'll come to the house on the weekend. Or sometimes we'll meet at the airport if I'm flying in or they're flying out or whatever. I'm pretty flexible on finding time for my entrepreneurs, however it works. Time is definitely not my friend. Um, and you know, it's just, uh, we, anyway, at one, we, one of these sessions, we were talking for, it was like an hour in and the entrepreneur had all these questions. And I, I looked at him at the end and I said, you know, you're not really asking me about your business. You're, you're questing for the meaning of life. And it was, a, it was just, it reminded me of me and my youth. And I was, I traveled around the world. I literally bought around the world tickets. I was just trying to find the answer, trying to find the answer. And my view is the meaning of life is different for everybody in some ways, but you won't find it, it will find you. And I, this whole long ramble comes down to this. For me, when I finally found my meaning of life, it's that happiness is not about having what you want. It's about wanting what you have. And when you have uh, satisfaction in what you've achieved at whatever level that is, that's happiness, right? The problem, and, and, and in fairness, sort of going back to my push on where things needed to go for people to be a venture scale entrepreneur, is when your desire can never be quenched because it's so far outreaches, like when it's never good enough. That creates an enormous amount of unhappiness. And so, you know, I think it is human nature to always want more. Um, it's the natural sort of greed is good thing from the Wall Street movie of greed for life, greed for success, greed for, you know, and ultimately when what you're building makes makes you happy because it is at the right sort of uh i don't know equilibrium then that's awesome and that can be true at any level right you know now there's this whole movement amongst like younger people the fire thing you know of uh being fiscally responsible and retiring early i'll tell you by the way i retired early and it wasn't something i need to do again it wasn't something i enjoyed it's quite boring but you know, like fiscal responsibility so that you can have flexibility is a great thing. I mean, having flexibility and look bluntly, um, I, I, I mentioned I had a dump bar truck right in uh, in college and I would drive around and sell my dump bars and I had fiscal freedom because of it, because on a weekend I might sell a couple thousand dollars worth of ice cream bars and have a, you know, thousand dollars in my pocket as a college student. Hey, in a weekend, that was great. That was a lot of freedom. I was very happy with that. Uh, I didn't need to take that. One of the things that we have tried to do in One Million by One Million is pose that question of what is success. And, and exactly your point, we have come to the same conclusion that success is personal. You have to define your success. At what level do you feel whole and you feel like you're good, you're at, you know, you're at peace with yourself? And, and uh, define that and execute to that instead of 
trying to live somebody else's life. Yes, there's a category of people who want to build these billion-dollar businesses, but there are trade-offs in that. And if, if that's the direction you want to go, great, but know what is involved in that. Don't stumble into that. That's, that's a path. That's, you know, 